Uh, let me pray, and um, let's, let's get into the passage. Father God, we thank you so much for this word. Uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, what you've said to Abraham, uh, because you said it to him, but also for what it says to us. So Lord, as we come to this passage, would you help us to see what you have to say to us? Help us to be challenged and convicted and changed uh, by the power of your word, we pray. Amen. Okay. In our series, we're working our way through the different covenants that God makes with his people in the book of Genesis. And today we're looking at the covenant that God makes with Abraham there in Genesis 15. And the question that gets raised for us by this passage is, can we trust God? Can we trust God? Now, the quick and obvious answer is, of course, yes, of course we can trust God. But what proof do we actually have of that? How do we know that God will actually do what he said he would do? That's our problem, and that's also the problem that Abraham faces. Now, by the way, I'm going to, uh, Abraham gets his name changed from Abram to Abraham in the later chapters. I'm just going to stick with calling him Abraham for now because that's kind of what we know him as, uh, just in case that confuses you. But Abraham faces the same problem that we face. Can he trust God? Can he trust God to do what he said he would do? See, God has given Abraham a bunch of promises, which we looked at last week back in chapter 12. God gave Abraham three big promises. God promised to give him the land of Canaan. God promised to make him into a great nation and that God was going to bless him. Three promises, land, nation, blessing. They were the promises that God had given to Abraham. And the question that Abraham faces and that we face is, can we trust God to deliver on his promises? Will God actually do what he said he would do? Compounding the problem for us, though, is this. The thing that compounds the problem for us is that we live in a world that is full of instant gratification. Instant gratification is getting what you want when you want it. So if we don't have something, you know, we can just go out and buy it. We can get it for ourselves. Or you can order it online and it will arrive in a couple of days. And that poses a particular problem for us because we're used to everything being instant. And when it's not instant, that's a frustration for us. And so it's hard for us to trust God to do what he said he'd do because often God doesn't work instantly. In fact, that's actually not the way promises work at all. The way, what makes a promise a promise is that there's this delay between the promise and its fulfilment. Inbuilt into the very concept and idea of a promise is the delay between the promise itself and its fulfilment. And so sometimes a promise can take years and years to come true. And in the case of Abraham, well, he didn't even get to see the fulfilment of his promises that God had made to him. He was promised the land of Canaan, and he got to see the land, and he even got to buy a small portion of it, but he didn't get to possess all of it. Or think about the promise of a great nation, 
all he got was one son. And the promise of blessing? Well, in a sense, you could say he was blessed, but certainly not to the extent that God promised that he would be blessed. And so what are we meant to do with that? You know, we all hate it when our online order is delayed. We get frustrated when the internet is buffering. It's annoying when we're stuck. It's annoying that we get stuck behind trucks coming up the hill. And if we can't, yeah. <laughs> Hit a sore spot, didn't I? But if we get annoyed at those little things, how can we trust God to do what He said He would do when there's such a long delay between the promise and its fulfillment? What hope do we have? How can we learn to trust God? And so we're going to work through, uh, we're going to work down each column, uh, filling in the table. And firstly, the problem. And the problem is there in the first three verses. What's happened is that Abraham, uh, he's won a, a bit of a war, he's won a battle. He's gone out to rescue his nephew Lot. And when you win a war, there's the spoils of war that are rightly yours. But Abraham, he's rejected the spoils of war, and instead he's decided to trust God, that God would give him uh, those kind of blessings, rather than taking it for himself. And so God says to Abraham in response to his faith, do not be afraid, Abram, I'm your shield, your very great reward. And that sounds great, but there's a problem. As Abraham reflects on the promises that God has made to him, land, nation, blessing, he realizes that there's no way that he will become a great nation because he's childless. Look at verse 2. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Abraham is an old man, and his wife Sarah have been, him and his wife Sarah have been unable to have children. And so the first promise of a nation is already falling in a heap. God promises that Abraham would be this kind of great nation, but it's already falling down. This guy, Eliezer of Damascus, is going to be the heir, not even a son. But God makes a promise there in verse 4 that he will have a son who will be his heir and will become the great nation that God had promised. That's the promise. And as a sign, God takes Abraham outside and points out all the stars and says, look at how many stars there are. That is how many offspring you will have. You will become this great nation. And then in response to that sign and in response to that promise, Abraham does this in verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. In terms of a response, it's perfect. It's spot on. Abraham believes God. He trusts in God, trusts that God will do what he said he would be able to do Despite conflicting evidence, you know, Abraham and Sarah, they're old, they're childless, they can't have kids, Abraham still puts the doubt aside and trusts in God. 
But then we get a second problem. Look at verses 7 to 8. God said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? You know, thinking about the three problems, uh, the three promises, land, nation, blessing, the nation is sorted, God's going to give Abraham a son, but what about the land? Abraham looks at the land and he, he realizes it's not his. He doesn't own it, doesn't possess it. There's all these other people who are living in it, and that's a problem. How is God going to give him the land that he had promised? And so God uh, reiterates, remakes his promise to him, and it's there in verses 12 to 16. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick, dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, in terms of promises, it's a little bit of a dud. (laughs) Normally, when you make a promise, normally it's about something good. You know, a negative promise... You don't, you don't really call it a promise. It's called like a vendetta or a curse or revenge or, or something like that. But by and large, promises are meant to be good things. You promise good things. But this promise is fairly negative. You know, firstly, God promises that Abraham's descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they'll be enslaved and mistreated. And it doesn't, doesn't sound great. Secondly, uh, the nation that enslaves you is going to be punished so I guess that's good, but it would be better if there wasn't any slavery at all, right? Thirdly, though, the descendants, they're going to come out of slavery with great possession, so that's good. Uh, fourthly, God promises that Abraham will die. Again, that doesn't sound good, but at least it's at a good old age, so it's not, you know, he's not going to die young. I mean, Abraham by this stage is already quite old. And fifthly, God promises that his descendants will come back to the land and the land will be theirs. And the reason that God gives as to why they can't have the land right now is because the sin of the Amorites hasn't reached its full measure. The Amorites were people living in the land and God says that it's not right for you to come and take possession of the land now because it's not time for the Amorites to be judged. God is going to use the Israelites to bring judgment on the Amorites, but now is not that time. It's not time for that to happen yet. And so the promises are a bit of a mixed bag. There's some good things, there's some bad things. Your descendants could be enslaved and mistreated, you're going to die, but your descendants are going to get the land. And the promise is there is that you will get the land. The land will be yours. You will possess it. And as a sign, God does this weird thing with the animals and with the fire pot that we read about 
earlier. God gets Abraham to bring a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, a pigeon, and he cuts those things in half. And there's the two birds as well. And he puts them on either side. And then in verse 12, the sun sets and Abraham falls into a deep sleep. And a thick and dreadful darkness comes over him. And a smoking, blazing fire pot, think of like a pot with some flame coming out of it, the fire pot moves between the, the, the carcasses, between the slaughtered animals. And the fire pot represents God himself. And so as God moves between the slaughtered animals, he says there in verse 18, "'To your descendants I will give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates.'" the land of the Kenites, Kezazites, Kadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. See, God moving between the pieces of the animals is the sign of the covenant that God is making with Abraham. But what does that actually mean? It's easy to explain what happened. You've got the pieces of the animals lying there. You've got the fire pot that moves between them, uh, speaking the words that are said. But what does that actually mean? What's actually going on here? Well, four things to say about covenants before we get to what it means. Firstly, a covenant is something that you make between two or more people. A covenant is a bit like a contract where different groups of people would, would agree to the terms of the contract or the covenant. Secondly, just like a contract, a covenant comes with obligations, terms and conditions that, that both parties would agree to. And if you were obedient to the covenant, then you would get good things. But if you disobeyed the covenant, then there were consequences. And in Bible language, you would call those blessings and curses. And so if you fulfilled your side of the covenant, then you would be blessed. But if you couldn't fulfill or you didn't fulfill your side of the covenant, your agreement, then there would be curses. Thirdly, you cut a covenant. With a contract, you sign it, but with a covenant, you cut it. You sign a contract, but you cut a covenant, and that's why they're cutting up animals. That's how you make a covenant, is by cutting it. Which brings us to the fourth thing about covenants. The consequences for breaking the covenant is illustrated by the animals. The reason you cut up the animals is to demonstrate the consequences of breaking the covenant. In effect, if you break the covenant, you will be cut up like the animals. A covenant was a serious thing that you entered into. You literally could see and smell the consequences of what would happen if you stepped outside of the agreement. So that's covenants, but what's going on here in this covenant? And the key thing to notice is who is promising to fulfill the covenant. And it's not Abraham. Abraham's asleep. 
The one who is agreeing to fulfill the terms of the covenant is God himself. God alone is promising to fulfill the terms and conditions of the covenant. And he is agreeing to fulfill both sides of the agreement. God is agreeing to fulfill both the promises and to be the one who will be cut up if someone doesn't fulfill their side of the covenant. God is binding himself to both the blessings and the curses. What God is promising is that even if Abraham is faithless and disobedient and rejects God, then God is promising that he won't punish Abraham, but instead will carry the punishment on himself and will still give Abraham everything that God had promised. If Abraham breaks the covenant by disobeying God, then it's not Abraham who's going to get cut up by the animals. It's God. God is agreeing to take on the curse for Abraham's covenant disobedience. And that is an incredible sign to Abraham. God is taking all of the onus, all of the responsibility on himself. Because he knows that Abraham doesn't have the ability, the willpower or the resources to keep any sort of covenant with God. Which is exactly what we see in Abraham's response. Abraham can't, even for a moment, maintain his faithfulness to God. In in response to God's incredible promises, what does he do? Well, he takes the promises out of God's hands and into his own. Instead of letting God fulfill the promises that he has made, Abraham decides to do things his own way. Abraham's still childless, and so him and his wife hatch a plan for him to sleep with his slave Hagar so that they can kickstart having descendants. Immediately, after all the promises and all the signs that God has given, Abraham loses faith in God. He immediately breaks the covenant. And so we're left with a problem. How will God fulfill his promises to Abraham? Abraham obviously can't keep the covenant. Abraham obviously doesn't have the resources or the ability or the willpower to keep trusting God. And so how will the promises of God be fulfilled? And the answer, of course, is Jesus. But let's think about how we get there. How we get from Abraham to Jesus is just as important as knowing that the answer is Jesus. You know, we we don't want to treat Jesus like a rabbit that you just kind of pull out of the hat as if he's some magical solution that appears out of thin air. So let's trace our way from Abraham to Jesus, and I want to give you this framework. Remember the three promises, land, nation, blessing? Well, you can think about it this way, and this is on the back of that page for those people. You can think about three promises this way, of land, nation, and rule and blessing. So are God's people in the land? Are they a great nation? Are they living under God's rule and blessing? If you think about Abraham, is Abraham in the land? Well, depending on what chapter you're in, yes, sort of, sometimes. (laughs) Is he a great nation? 
Well, no, he's not. He's got one son. Is he living under God's rule and blessing? Well, sometimes, sort of, depends on what chapter you're in. (laughs) And then we can keep going with the story. What about when they're slaves in Egypt? Are they in the land? No, they're in Egypt. They're slaves in Egypt. Are they a great nation? Not, well, they're not great. They might be a nation, but they're not a great nation. Are they living under God's rule and blessing? No, they're slaves in Egypt. It all, the promises really suck. <laughs> they're not being fulfilled at that moment. And then God rescues them out of Egypt, and they spend some time wandering in the desert before they get to the promised land. And you can ask the question, well, What about then? What about as they're wandering in the wilderness? Are they in the land? Are they a great nation? Are they living under God's rule and blessing? And I'm not going to answer that for you. You can do that in your own time. Eventually, God brings them into the land, and we get get King David, and we get King Solomon, and we get the beginning of the reigns and rules, ruling of the kings. And you can ask the question, you know, under, under the great King David, under great King Solomon, when the kingdom is at its biggest and its best, Are they in the land? Are they a great nation? Are they living under God's rule and blessing? And again, you can do that homework for yourself. After a period of time, the kingdom is in decline. The kingdom gets split after Solomon. And the northern kingdom, you can ask the same questions for the northern kingdom, whether they're in the land, whether they're blessed, all that sort of stuff. The southern kingdom... They continue to rebel against God, and they end up as exiles in Babylon. And while they're there, again, you can ask the question, are they God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing? And after a while, they're brought back into the land, and then Jesus appears. And Jesus is the representative, the model Israelite. He is the one who is God's people from whom all of God's people will come. And you've got to ask, well, okay, what about Jesus? Is he in the land? Yes, he is. Is Jesus a great nation? Well, no, but he will go on to create a great nation through his death and resurrection. We're going to see that in a moment. But he is, he is living the way that the Israelites should live in the land, being God's people. Does he live under God's rule and blessing? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely, he does. And so that that bit of framework, you can use that to read the Old Testament. You can think, who are God's people in this passage? And are they living in God's place under God's rule and blessing, living the way that they should have lived? And Jesus is that. Jesus is the one who fulfills the promises that God had made to Abraham And he passes those promises on to us by taking the curse on himself. If you've got your Bibles, come with me to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Give you a moment to find it. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Galatians is after Corinthians. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. It says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse 
of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. See, God promised Abraham that he would absorb the covenant curses. And so he does exactly that in the death of Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross like a slaughtered animal, taking on the curse for our disobedience and our unfaithfulness. God in Christ has absorbed, has taken the curses away. And so now that we are free from the curses, we get to participate in the blessings of the covenant. The blessings can be ours. And so how do we know that God has done that? How do we know that God has actually taken away the consequences for our rebellion against God? What's the sign that God's promises have come true? Well, it's the cross and the empty tomb. In Jesus, the promises of land, nation and blessing have come true. Jesus is the one who always lived God's way under God's rule and blessing. And so anyone who is in him becomes God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. God redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. We get the blessings of Abraham because of Jesus. You know, just like Abraham, we could never live in a way that would fulfill the terms of the covenant. You know, just like Abraham, we don't have the resources or the willpower or the ability or the means to live a life that is faithful to God. But Jesus could. And so he does what Abraham can't do and what we can't do. He is the one who lives in faithful obedience to God. But instead of keeping the blessings of the covenant to himself, he takes our curse and he spreads the blessings of the covenant out to us. And so praise God for the saving work of Jesus. Praise God that he could do what we could never do. Praise God for taking on the covenant curses so that we could receive the covenant blessings. Praise God that we get to be the recipients of the promises that God made to Abraham. Praise God that it isn't reliant on what we need to do or on our ability to be faithful to God. You know, Abraham was asleep. All he could do was marvel at God walking among the carcasses. And that's all we can do too. All we can do, all we should be doing, is marvelling at Jesus who hung on the cross for us and who so then secures our, our position before God. We get to be God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing because of the work of Jesus. And so how can we learn to trust God? That's the question that we started with. How can we learn to trust God when there's still 
a gap between the promise and its fulfillment. See, God has promised that one day Jesus would return and fix everything that's wrong with the world. He'll right every wrong and bring justice and healing and peace, but that's not now. God also promises that He has forgiven our sins, but our guilt can still weigh us down. God promises that by His Spirit, he will grow, we will get to grow in holiness. But often it feels like we keep on slipping back into old sins. And so how do we learn to trust God when we're still living in the gap between what He has promised and, and it coming true, its fulfillment? Well, the answer is actually quite simple. We can learn to trust God by looking back. How do we know that God is faithful and will always do what He said He would do? It's not by looking into our hearts for some sort of mystical feeling. We know God is faithful by the objective reality of the cross and the empty tomb. We look back at Jesus. Because if Jesus has been raised to life, then of course God will continue to carry out his promises. It's a done deal. And so trust in Jesus. In Jesus, we see that God is faithful. And it's not about how much faith we have. It's about the object of our faith and who our faith is in. Two people went to an airport to catch a plane to Sydney. One uh, was an old man. He'd never been out of WA. He'd never flown before. He was going over to Sydney to visit his kids and he was nervous and scared about flying on an aeroplane for the first time. Uh, He'd been researching uh, flight and aeroplanes and how these big mechanical kind of beasts can stay in the air. Uh, He'd been doing that over the week leading up uh, to the flight. And he gets to the airport super early Uh, way too early for a domestic flight would normally be. He has to wait around for the chaos to kind of start up and he has to to get some help with that. He's not sure how everything kind of really works. He's got to kind of work it all out for the first time. He's super scared that his bags aren't going to make it. So, you know, as he puts it on the trolley thing and it goes onto the conveyor belt, you know, he gives it a little pat to make sure it's going to get, get there. A little kind of goodbye pat. He eventually, you know, he arrives at the gate and the other kind of flight is still boarding, so he has to, like, wait for them. Um, And, you know, it's kind of really awkward because he tries to hop on the wrong flight and they have to be like, no, no, like, just wait for these guys to go. Your flight's coming, you know. During the safety briefing, when he's on the plane, he's really paying attention. You know, when the... the, um, uh, flight attendant says, you know, make sure you know where your closest exit is. He doesn't just assume it's that one. He actually, like, double checks. He, he double checks with the flight attendant. He paces it out. Uh, he knows exactly where the emergency exit is. Uh, when the flight of actually, when the flight kind of goes, he's uh, halfway there. There's a bit of turbulence in the air, and you can see him gripping his seat really tightly. He's super scared, really nervous. There's a second person at the airport. Uh, This one is a businesswoman. She travels to Sydney every month uh, for meetings and conferences. She arrives only just in time to get the final kind of five minutes of the check-in process. 
Uh, she goes through security and throughout security and all that, she's barely paying attention. She, she barely even knows what's going on. She just kind of flies through, uh, doesn't talk to anyone, just keeps on going. She's done this so many times that she's bored with the whole process. When she gets on the plane, uh, she's, you know, during the safety briefing, she's working on her laptop. She doesn't even register that the safety briefing is happening. During the turbulence on the flight over, she actually manages to fall asleep. Now, here's the question. Who has more faith in the plane? It's the woman, right? She has way more faith that she's going to get to Sydney. But who gets to Sydney? Well, both of them. Both of them get to Sydney. Because it's not about the amount of faith that you have. It's about who your faith is in. Both of them had faith that the plane would get them to Sydney, but the man only had a mustard seed of faith. But that doesn't matter. What matters is what their faith is in. And so it doesn't matter if you have faith like Abraham had in the first half of the chapter, where he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter if you have the sort of faith that Abraham has in the second half of the chapter, where he's flinching and faltering. It's not about the amount of faith that we have. What matters most is that our faith is in Jesus. And the more that we look at Jesus, the more that we can trust in him, the more our faith will grow. So come back to the airport one more time. Imagine a third person at the airport. They look at the check-in, they look at the security, they read the flight board and it shows all the planes arriving and departing. They even kind of make it through security and, and go. Uh, they, you know, they've got a ticket, so they go through the kiosk thing, they go through security, uh, they make it up to the gate where the man and the woman are boarding the plane for Sydney. But instead of hopping on the plane, they turn around, they leave the airport, and they go home. And that person will never know the blessings and benefits of Sydney because they didn't get on the plane. And that is true for you and true for me too. We can't have the blessings and promises of God unless we're trusting in Jesus. And so don't be like the person who just kind of goes through all that, who goes to the airport to look, but to never participate. You know, if you want hope and joy and a future and the blessings of the gospel, then they can be yours if you trust in the Lord Jesus. God's word says that Christ redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to us in him. So trust in Jesus. He's done all the hard work. He's died for you and for me. He's risen to life, giving us new life. Trust in him. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much that despite our floundering and our flinching faith, 
We thank you that despite all of that, you have given to us the Lord Jesus, who was always faithful, who was always obedient, who always lived under your good rule. We thank you that in him we can have the blessings and benefits of the gospel. Please help us to trust in him, to love him and to serve him, we pray. Amen.